chapter 9 tonight, uh, chapter 9 and 10, we finished the book. So now you can say you are masters of the book of Esther, and hopefully on the subject of providence, you've been well instructed. As you're opening your Bibles there, I, that hymn we just sang about uh, uh, God's providence over the wrecks of time. I don't know if you feel like you're a wreck of time tonight. I know as we grow a little older, we might feel that way. Uh, but we do thank the Lord that he's even sovereign over uh, eons or ages of time. And his providence is at work. Um, so our propositions, uh, as we have sort of unpacked them from the book of Proverbs, we'll make reference to them here uh, eventually. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to kind of be here. Uh, I think some of the sermons are online and would be good, particularly in the book of Esther, to really get a flow. Uh, and it's hard to sort of jump in at the end here. Uh, but we're going to do that. I'm just going to start to read chapter 9 uh, and, verse, and, and chapter 10. And then we'll uh, look to see what the Lord has for us there. So let's just pick it up right in chapter 9. Um, now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the, the Jews themselves gained the mastery. And if you're, if you're somebody who writes in your Bible, you really want to underline that phrase. Uh, that really sums up. Uh, the point of really the whole book, and specifically chapters nine and ten, that the Jew uh, uh, that it uh, the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, uh, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Verse number two: The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King, provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples, even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Lists the name there of Haman's sons. I'm not going to slaughter their pronunciations. You can sort of read them to yourself. But uh, the ten sons of Haman, uh, the sons of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, uh, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa the capital was reported to the king. I want to remember that the Jews simply are defending themselves throughout these provinces. Um, they're, they're simply been allowed to sort of counteract. Remember Haman's edict uh, that people could attack the Jews. Uh, and, and the second edict that was authored by Mordecai, sent out by Esther, that the Jews were allowed to assemble and defend themselves. And, and obviously, uh, we pick up from the text, if you're going to choose a side, you're definitely going to choose the side of the Jews because, uh, oh, by the way, there happens to be this guy Mordecai, who is a Jew himself and just so happens to be second in command of the whole empire. 
so if you're going to choose a side and you're a wise chooser, you're definitely going to choose to be on the Jews' side. Verse number 12, And the king said to King Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman and Susa the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? And now what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows, uh, their corpses. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa and Haman's ten sons were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month, Adar, and killed 300 more men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies. And throughout the empire, they killed 75,000 uh, people who tried to lay hands on them, and they defended themselves. Uh, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. Verse 17, this was done on the 13th day of the month of Dar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar, Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because of those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning in, into a holiday. Uh, really referring back up there to uh, the second half of verse number one. The Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Verse 23, thus the Jews undertook and they had started to do uh, what they had started to do and uh, what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadath, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor that is the lot, uh, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. These days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. This is really the, the only non-Mosaic festival uh, or feast that has the imprimatur of the Holy Spirit because obviously he penned it and put his imprimatur on it for the nation to celebrate. So this is outside the Mosaic commands. And one of the purposes of this book is to show that this is a legitimate 
festival and, 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 and high time in the Jewish calendar and should be celebrated. And it's to note that it celebrates the rich providence of God. Um, and we're going to mention that here in a little bit. Then Queen Esther, daughter of uh, Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, uh, words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai, the Jew, and Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. <clears throat> and, he, and the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. Chapter 10, now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength. And oh, by the way, there's a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with the multitude of his kingsmen one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Let's bow for a word of prayer as so we look to the Lord, uh, and then we'll seek to make some comments here. Father, we thank you for your rich providence. And tonight, Lord, we see again the, your mightiness, but we observe uh, that in your mightiness there is infinite and eternal might. And we confess that you are all mighty. And we bow the knee at the end of this book and we rest quietly, basking in the glow of providence and thanking you so much that you, the God of Esther, are equally the God of the church. You have not changed. Your power is just as rich and true. And we worship you tonight. And we thank you for what you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the New Testament local church, it can be said we're a peculiar band of people. It's made up of 100% formerly ravaged, dysfunctional sinners saved by grace alone. According to Romans chapter 6, God's power has broken the power of the mastery of the enemy of sin in each one of our lives. We now in Christ have the ability not to sin, whereas before we, we, we did not have that ability. But now in Christ we do. That power and dominion of sin has been broken in our lives. But if that weren't enough, God's providence goes beyond and turns the fallout from our past to a means of wisdom and instruction to those with whom we disciple. We reflect upon 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we are in fact commanded to comfort those with comfort that we have been comforted with. And what Paul's talking about there is he's talking about in the journey of our growing in Christ's likeness and the trials that God uses to bring that Christ likeness around in our life. In this sense, folks, God's providential power not only halts the mastery of enemies, it turns their influence to the contrary. This is amazing. 
Can I use the word? I'm going to say it. It is serendipitous. I'm going to let you think about that. Serendipity is the most precise word in the English language for this aspect of God's providential power. The word serendipity means an occurrence and development events seemingly by chance. We believers put that in quotes. That result in a happy or beneficial way. We might say something, well, that was a pleasant surprise. It is this truth that Esther chapter 9 and 10 makes in dramatic fashion. To say that God's providence overpowers is true, but it does so much more than that. It reverses what seems to be horrific realities. It is the fountainhead of serendipity in the life of a believer. This amazing aspect of the providential power of God in the lives of the characters in the book of Esther is reported in summary fashion in these last two chapters in Esther. This is, this is as though the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss the serendipitous reality of God's people who are walking under the providential power of God. The rich, interested, uh, uh, involved power of God in our life. So first tonight, let's observe how God's providential power serendipitously ruled in the life of the Jews. We see this simply reported in the verse number one, the second half of the verse. Uh, we've sort of highlighted it already. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that serendipitously the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. This literally is the rags to riches reality of the Jews at this time. And the Holy Spirit reports the power of providence to literally bring about reversal. Move not only to from a deficit to a neutral standing, but to move far beyond that to profit and encouragement and joy and happiness. We see it again in verse number two. Uh, the reality of this serendipitous turn of events, this, this very uh, a pleasant surprise. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hold on those who sought their harm. And how many? No one could stand before them. No one could stand before them. Why? Because the dread of them had fallen on how many of the peoples? All of the peoples. Verse number three, who is included in this Jewish support. Well, surprise, surprise. All the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews. All of them. All. All. This is a pleasant surprise. This is serendipitous. This is something that at the beginning of the book we could never have imagined. 
never have imagined. And yet God in his providential power has brought it to pass. All. Why? Well, it hinges in an empire of people, countless numbers of people. It hinges on this man, Mordecai, one simple man who at times in the story of Esther, we really thought was blowing it. Remember when he publicly identified the fact that he was a Jew and he was in sackcloth and ashes and caused Esther all kinds of consternation as she tried to get him audience with the king, but then he would not have it. He seemed to be causing all the problems in the book of Esther. And yet God in his providential power works in and through that. Serendipitously moves the Jews from the off-scouring to now the dread of the Jews are upon the land. So not only do we see God's providential power serendipitously ruling in the life of the Jews, but we also have it reported in chapter 9 that God's providential power serendipitously rules in the life of Mordecai. Verse number 4. Indeed. You know, here, here's, for those of you that are taking the preaching and the teaching Bible class, you need, when you're, when you're looking at a particularly Old Testament narrative, when you see these little interjections or these conjunctions, sort of indeed or behold or therefore and thus, here's where the Holy Spirit is. Here's where the providential power of God is found. It's found in the conjunctions of your life and it's found in the interjections of your life. And it's found in the text in that very same place. Indeed, verse number four. Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spreads throughout all, there it is again, the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Indeed, God's providence seen here. Mordecai was great in the king's house. How many are in the king's house? Countless of people are in the court of the king. And, and, and they are the cream of the cream of the crop. But God in his marvelous providence takes this, this one man and among those who are great, he makes him great for God's purposes. We, we reflect on the fact of Daniel of old. We reflect on the fact of, 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 of Nehemiah, who are these men who are put in prominent places among prominent people and they, God elevates them and uses them in, in, in a spectacular fashion. Joseph, we recall, the same way, the same way, serendipitously rules in the life of Mordecai, this, this man who just was stubborn. He was stubborn. You know, he, he, he would not bow the knee to Haman. He, he wouldn't, even when the, 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 the rest of the people in the king's court sort of lovingly and nervously came to him and said, you know, Mordecai, maybe you could just bow a little bit. And, you know, and he wouldn't. He would not. Uh, I, wouldn't, I think it's a little too far to say he had conviction. I, don't, I think we're at a spiritually low time in the nation of Israel. Okay, this is not, we, we don't go and look at the book of Esther and say, hey, let's be that. Okay, Mordecai is not, you know, he's not your God-fearing kind of guy. He's a nationalist. And God is working through this nationalism in a, in a, in a spectacular way. 
His fame spreads throughout all the province. So not only is he great in the king's house, his fame spreads throughout all the provinces, throughout the whole empire. And if that weren't enough, it wasn't a static reality. In other words, you know, it wasn't just a point in time where Mordecai enjoyed sort of the favor of the king. But God in his providence allowed his greatness to, to just get greater and greater and greater. I mean, the dread just, just, just would not go away of the Jews because of Mordecai's increasing favor in the king's mind. And how that was expressed, we can only imagine. Greater and greater. All the provinces, great in the house of Ahasuerus. Verse number five, thus, 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 we have a serendipitous moment. Thus, as a result, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying. We're also told that they did what they pleased to those who hated them, who were attacking them. There was no restraint from government officials. They, they let them have their way. We see in verse number 6, in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men who we assume were seeking to kill the Jews under Haman's idea. In verses 7 through 10, they killed the 10 sons of Haman, who is the Jews' enemy. He had been identified in that way. Verse number 10, but they did not lay their hands on any of the plunder. The Jews, uh, the plunder was under the ban. These were people who had uh, uh, understood the Mosaic law. Uh, remember, there was a man in the Old Testament who didn't understand the ban. His name was Achan. And, and when the nation was moving forward, he literally choked out the forward progress. These people were reflecting on Haman, uh, on, on Achan. And they would not take the plunder. They were under the ban. They were considered gods. And he would do with them what he wished and willed. So in all of this, God's providential power serendipitously rules in the life of the Jews as a nation, in the life of Mordecai. Thirdly, God's providential power serendipitously ruled in the life of Esther. I mean, look at verse number 12. What's happening here? We no longer have Esther trembling, coming to the king, hoping that the king puts out his scepter. Now the king is coming to Esther. This is a stunning reversal for all kinds of reasons, just knowing the history of the ancient Near East, knowing the history of Ahasuerus himself, remembering how he viewed Vashti. She was a thing she was an item. She could be easily disposed of. And somehow God had brought Esther into the life of Ahasuerus in such a way where she had favor that was heretofore unknown, probably by any woman in the ancient Near East. So the king comes to Esther wanting her to be happy. Right? This is amazing. Verse 12, the king reports to Esther. Oh, Esther, honey, sweetie, did you see how the Jews triumphed? Isn't that wonderful? 
Aren't you so happy? You know, and sweetie, anything else I can do for you? You know, verse number 12, the king not only reports to Esther, the king entreats her, entreats her. Uh, Esther takes advantage again. Uh, she, she is concerned uh, that long after she is gone, that uh, the, the hatred of the Jews would return. This is sort of the historic habit, and she's aware of that. So she, she asks for another day uh, to allow the Jews to execute once again uh, against their enemies. Um, she asks for a public display of the sons of Haman. Uh, to be hung on the gallows that uh, Haman had prepared for Mordecai. And she wants publicly the capital in Susa to, to see the reversal and to be instructed by the reversal of the hand of God. For those who would try to act in a way that was contrary to the promise that he had made to Abraham. That unilateral promise that it would be through the Jewish nation that the Messiah would come forth. In that sense, God pursues keeping that promise. Even when the nation of Israel is in a spiritually low time, he remains faithful to his promise in a breathtaking way. I don't even think Esther understood all of that. But that's in fact what's going on here. It's amazing. And we learn then in verse 15 that 300 more of the Jews' enemies are killed in Susa, in the capital. So serendipitously, God works in the life of the Jews. Remember, they were done. There was a, this was an official pogrom. This was going to annihilate the whole race. And God reversed that and gave them mastery over their enemies. The life of Mordecai, serendipitously. What a, what a pleasant surprise. It's not static, it's just growing greater and greater. And the life of Esther now, she becomes uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the center for the king's affections, even in a way that, uh, as, uh, that hadn't even been true in previous chapters. He comes and entreats her and, and, and reports to her. Fourthly tonight, God's providential power serendipitously ruled the whole Persian Empire. A whole empire. This was one of uh, the rare times in the history of the world that there was one empire that ruled literally from sea to shining sea. It just wasn't the Atlantic and the Pacific. It was over in the uh, Far East. Powerful, powerful empire. And God serendipitously rules the Persian Empire. Verse 16, we see that 75,000 of the enemies of the Jews were killed throughout the Persian Empire, completely taking the, those who hated, those who had sort of that special vendetta against this race of individuals, these Jews, they were completely, their influence was gone, literally in, in less than a 12-hour period of time. This is, this is amazing. This is breathtaking. This is the power of providence. When God sets out to keep his promise. The Jews throughout the empire do what? They rejoice. They feast. They share portions of food with one another in the city. And they do so openly. Remembering that the dread of Mordecai is on all the governmental officials. Wherever they're to be found. 
So the government officials are glad that they're happy and are probably contributing to their happiness. And they're hoping word gets back to Mordecai. We see that this is happening in verse 18 in the city, Susa. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th day, in the same month. And they rested on the 15th day and made it a feasting and rejoicing. And then verse 19. Not only is it in the cities, the urban areas, but it's in the rural areas as well. In other words, it literally is in the warp and woof or in the very fabric of the whole empire. Wherever Jews are found, they're rejoicing. And everybody's rejoicing with them, with an eye on Mordecai. It's amazing. We have this report of the Feast of Purim being instituted uh, with the Holy Spirit's imprimatur. It's, it's noteworthy that the Holy Spirit, uh, as much as we know many of the Mosaic feasts and festivals celebrate some of the miracles that occurred in the life of the nation of Israel, the plagues and uh, coming up out of and, and, and uh, the, the Feast of Booze and Tabernacles and, and, and much of the, 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 the sort of the, the, the religious practice around the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, you know, these are things of prophecy, of things to come. And, and here we have a feast and a festival that highlights the providential power of God in the life of the nation. So we have God providentially ruling the Persian Empire. And then finally, number five here, God's providential power serendipitously rules the history books. I just, just, you just can't dream this up. I mean, you know, again, a miracle, again, is, is wonderful. It's a point in time. It's punctuated. But, but it's here that providence is so, is so constantly moving and working in and through all of the things that you are moving and doing and participating in. And that here it, it, it literally rewrites or does something unnatural in the history books, I would argue. We, we get what we would expect in verse number 1 of chapter 10. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute in the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full, uh, uh, were, were listed. That's what we would expect. We'd sort of expect a period there. But oh no. What don't we expect? Well, uh, the history books record serendipitously something else. A pleasant surprise. This guy named Mordecai. It records specifically Mordecai's rank. Mordecai's status, Mordecai's character in such a way, and maybe it's just the author reporting it this way, but it, it almost sort of eclipses the emperor himself. Because Mordecai has what perhaps the emperor doesn't, has some level of national character. As he seeks the good of his people. And one who speaks for the welfare of his whole nation. Perhaps even Mordecai reflecting on the Abrahamic, uh, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. So serendipity. The Jews, Esther, Mordecai, the empire, and the history books. 
from the author's perspective, we're all pleasantly surprised. Not only was chaos averted, but God's rich providence enabled pleasant surprise after pleasant surprise. God kept his promise to Abraham by providentially working comprehensively, personally and precisely, compelling obedience, imperceptibly overpowering, and turning would-be evil to good in a breathtaking, serendipitous way. Friends, is God able to keep his promise he has made to us? Yes or no? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Unbeliever, if you don't know the God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, are you willing to trust your eternal destiny to the God of the Bible who has the power not only of miracle, but the power of providence to keep the promises he has made to you? I would suggest and recommend you putting your faith and trust in the God of the Bible. We, the church, operate under different promises. Promises that are so much more relevant for us. We Gentiles who spend lives in dysfunctionality, caused by our unwillingness to accept the authority of God, it is a course of life that literally wrecks havoc on our souls. As such, enemies gain mastery over us. Are there enemies in your life that have the mastery? Appetites? Lust of the flesh? Lust of the eyes? The boastful pride of life? Perhaps fueling these soul havoc-wrecking realities are sins that have been committed against you. As a result, the root of bitterness and unbiblical thinking and feeling plague your soul relentlessly. Friends, God has made each one of us the promise that whosoever believeth in him will have everlasting life. This is a promise of quality, not quantity. The fact of the matter is, all mankind will live eternally somewhere. That is not what's at issue in John 3.16 or in any part of the book of John. The promise is one of quality of life. The promise is that we will progressively begin to enjoy the kind of life that dominates those who are in heaven with God forever. Those souls know perfect peace and rest <clears throat> as they live in perfect harmony with God's will. This is the promise <clears throat> God has made to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Lest we confuse this with the heresy of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, let us not forget how it worked out in the life of Mordecai and Esther. Their lives were nothing if it, they were not filled with tension, drama, and difficulty. 
So this isn't about the health, wealth, prosperity, right? I mean, I, I feel a lot of tension in Esther, a lot of drama, a lot of difficulty. It kind of sounds like your life and mine. The providential power of God in no way guarantees smooth sailing through life. It does, however, compel resignation to his loving, sovereign hand in our life. And it compels obedience, leaving all of the reactions and responses to his care and to his control. With your life in the hands of, providential, of the providential power of God, be prepared to be pleasantly surprised at reversals he will bring about in your soul first and then in your life as you submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Here are some of the promises, dear Gentile friend, that he has made to you if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his or her innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Folks, it does not say in his or her circumstances. No, that's not the promise. The promise is to reclaim your soul, to teach it how to think as God thinks, to teach it to feel as God feels, and to, to teach it to do as God does. And as we progressively do that, in the providence of God, out of our inner being will flow rivers of living. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Yeah, you do. Jesus promises that you will be. Under his providential hand. How about Philippians 1.6? For I am confident, confident, Paul says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, in you, will perform it or perfect it until the day of Jesus. Well, what is that work? That your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you stop approving things that are subpar in your life. And you start approving things that are excellent. If you're going to do that, you have to cut the chain of your own self-interests. And you have to become a lover as God wants you to be a lover. Which remember is agape, it's self-sacrificing love. It, 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 it has not self in view, but God in view. This is the promise. And oh, by the way, as you enjoy these new, now excellent things in the way you think, feel, and act, this will fill you with assurance as you come to the end of your life that you are truly born again and you'll have a joyful entrance into heaven having been put in the state of a life that is filled with the fruits of righteousness. Don't you want the fruits of righteousness in your life? I mean, I'm telling you, the fruits of unrighteousness, folks, <laughs> that's not the dream, okay? That is pathetic. You want to know why? Because I've lived there, and it's hard 
The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that. And then one more, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And why is this such a problem? Well, because the world is passing away. That's why it's such a problem. A system that is built on your own self-interests is passing away. Eternity is not filled with your self-interests. Eternity is filled with the interests of God and His values. So that's why God is trying to teach us to be done away. They're just not going to be around. They're going to be moot. Right? It's like technology. It's going to be, what's the word they use when something's no longer useful anymore in technology? What's that? Obsolete. Obsolete. That's the word I'm looking for, Kay. Thank you. Not only is it going to, does it lead to a horrific quality of life, it's just flat out going to be obsolete. And here's the promise. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's the test of a living faith. So, friend, tonight, if you're here, you are not appropriately responding to the providential power of God if, if you are constantly rationally, rationalizing and reasoning your, your, uh, your responses and your thinking and, and, and you are not submitted to be a warm, loving learner. You will be somebody who literally is standing against the promise of God in your life. You know, it's like, it's like I don't know, if have you ever been to a whitewater rafting river? You know, think of God's providence as that white water, and it's constantly pushing all those rocks downstream. Even the big ones. They're getting smoothed out, and eventually they get rolled. That's what you guys are like, rocks in the stream. And God's providential power will just overwhelm you one day. And if not in this life, in the life to come. And you don't want to have it happen then. Because at that point, the opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior is done. It's done. This is the dispensation of grace and truth. That will be the dispensation of the expression of the wrath of God. You don't want to be there, friend. So believer, God will keep his promises to you. He will. He's begun a good work. He's going to perform it. He, he's, 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 he's going to uh, uh, allow rivers of living water flow from your innermost being. If you willingly submit his providential work in your life. And really, <laughs> you will testify to one reality or the other. God's providential power is not turned on its head because you are unwilling to resign yourself to obedience and, 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 and to God's loving, sovereign hand in your life. Just won't. 
So there's warning and there's, there's, there's also great encouragement. Your life can be the commentary of serendipity, of a pleasant surprise, of a life that, whose soul was ruined and racked by dysfunctionality and sin. And now today has turned that and, 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 and is enjoying mastery over those things and being a blessing to others. And that's what God has called we Gentiles to in the New Testament local church. May God help us as we pursue this reality. Let's all stand together. We're going to pray. And uh, then we'll allow you to be dismissed as the piano comes and just uh, plays for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this marvelous book. And we thank you because it, 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 it uh, in an imperceptible way almost, highlights this powerful truth that we can't miss. The, the irony is there. It's, it's on one hand imperceptible, and on the other hand, it is, it is so extremely perceptible. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would get excited about the providential power of God. That we would recognize that, God, you are lovingly, actively, constantly working to keep your promises in our life every year, every month, every day, every hour, and every moment. And I pray that that reality, that, that love of God would constrain us and to compel us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to obedience. And to leave off the old life and to become that which you have designed for us to become. To become that fountain of living water so that we can disciple just one. Lord, please just give us one, each one. Somebody that we can encourage, somebody that we can share the gospel with, to see them come to know Jesus Christ and to, to then be able to take them by the hand and to, uh, to, to, to empathize with them because we remember what life was like outside of Christ and to encourage them and to help them know that the processes they're going through are natural and normal and, and, and it's difficult, but, but oh Lord Jesus, at the end of it, it's peace that passes all understanding. Lord, please use us in one person's life before we die at least, Lord Jesus. Uh, this is what the church does. We are an outpost to make disciples. And we do so with the winds of the providential power in our sail. And I pray that uh, we wouldn't stand around waiting for miracles any longer. Dear God, forgive us for that. Uh, we thank you that you are a miracle-working God. But what is far more amazing in our mind, if we can say it that way, is providence. It's amazing. We love you. We worship you more richly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed. Lord bless you.